all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they are growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Congratulations, you just brought home a newborn baby. Well, now what? What's that noise she's making? How many diapers should she be changing in a day? How much should she be eating? Well, we'll be tackling these questions and any questions that you might have today as we talk about what to expect in your newborn. You can share your questions and comments by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464 or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Senate Judiciary Committee wants to hear from Donald Trump Jr. in open session as early as next week. It's preparing to subpoena him if necessary. Chairman Chuck Grassley confirms he has sent a letter to the president's son. Trump Jr. is under scrutiny for an email thread that revealed he, his brother-in-law, Jared Kushner, and campaign manager at the time, Paul Manafort, were present at a meeting with a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower. This after the younger Trump learned the Russians were offering dirt on Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Trump says there was no exchange of information, but Republican and Democratic critics say any such offer by the Russians should have been referred to the FBI. The president and first lady Melania Trump have met up with French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife Brigitte. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports their meeting was broadcast live on television. When President Trump and the First Lady got out of their limousine at Les Invalides, French commentators spoke about how the two presidents shook hands and greeted each other warmly. And they remarked that President Trump kissed Brigitte Macron. Trump was given military honors in the courtyard of Les Invalides before the two couples visited Napoleon's tomb, which lies within the military complex. Live footage showed Trump and Macron speaking closely and continuously. The two presidents are ideologically opposed on most issues, but French commentators say they have a warm and budding personal relationship. On Friday, Trump will watch the traditional Bastille Day military parade. American troops are being honored this year to mark the centennial of the United States' entry into World War I. Eleanor Beardsley, Pierre News, Paris. Pro-democracy activists around the globe are paying tribute to one of the world's most prominent political prisoners, Liu Xiaobo. He died today from liver cancer at the age of 61. The activist was known for the significant role he played during protests in Tiananmen Square in 1989. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Beijing, Liu was serving an 11-year prison term for trying to overthrow China's government. Liu Xiaobo died while on medical parole in a hospital in the northeastern city of Shenyang. He was diagnosed at the end of May with late-stage liver cancer. Beijing had dismissed calls for him to be treated overseas. Liu was a university lecturer and literary critic. 
He played a central role in the 1989 pro-democracy protests, after which he was sentenced to his first of four stints in jail. He was also barred from publishing in China after that, so he remains largely unknown in his own country. His final jail term was for his role in writing a 2008 manifesto calling for political reform. China's government saw Liu as a common criminal, unworthy of the Nobel Prize. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing. U.S. stocks are trading moderately higher. This is NPR News. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker says he has activated the National Guard to assist flood victims in the state. Chuck Kornbach of Wisconsin Public Radio has the latest. The worst flooding appears to be in the southeastern corner of Wisconsin, particularly the city of Burlington, where the Fox River has gone over its banks. The area was hit by six to eight inches of rain early Wednesday morning. There was a curfew last night and state of emergency declared for Racine County. Governor Walker says he'll tour the affected areas today. Chuck Kernbach reporting. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators reintroduced a bill aimed at preventing the illegal sale of Native American cultural items. From member station KNAU, Ryan Heinches reports the bill follows years of high-profile auctions in Paris. The Safeguard Tribal Objects of Patrimony, or STOP Act, would strengthen U.S. authority to prevent overseas trafficking and stiffen penalties for illegal exporters. Hopi, Navajo, Acoma Pueblo, and other tribal leaders say many of the sacred items are obtained unlawfully. Lee Kuan Wisioma is the director of the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office. These are living entities and their rightful homes are here in the Hopi villages. So yes, that's how we treat them as cultural patrimony. U.S. law already restricts the sale of some Native American sacred items, but the regulations don't apply in France. The Holocaust Art Restitution Project has condemned the Paris auctions. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff, Arizona. The Dow is up 24 points at last glance at 21,556. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. And now... Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Well, you've made it through pregnancy and delivery, and now you're finally bringing home that bundle of joy as a family. But what about all those uncertainties? Have you doubted that you will know what to do with your newborn? Never fear. We're here to help you answer some of those questions today on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens as we talk about all the things to expect with your newborn. As usual, we'll be taking your questions and comments. We would love to hear from you this morning. You can reach us by calling one 877 be ring that's one 877 or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org well i hope everybody is enjoying the summer uh, trying to 
deal with the heat, particularly here in the south. I know it's uh, humidity is high. It feels like you uh, are swimming through the air in whatever you're doing. Had the opportunity to go to the beach for a whole week, which is a long time for me. Uh, I'm sort of a mountain guy, but uh, but it was hot down there. Great weather on the uh, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Louis, uh, uh, Florida, Gulf Coast, and uh, uh, had a good time down at the beach. Even saw a sea turtle laying eggs. First thing, it was weird. Uh, we were going down to the beach to take the tent down and uh, looked over, and uh, right there in the sand, there's a three-and-a-half-foot-long sea turtle, loggerhead turtle, laying eggs right there. It was pretty neat. Uh, so got to see a lot of different stuff this time at the beach. Hope you're enjoying your summer and keeping it safe for you and your family. Don't forget the sunblock. That can do a lot of damage to your skin, particularly if you have young ones with you. And uh, don't forget to reapply. That's where everybody makes their mistakes, If you, particularly if you're going to be out there all day long. So newborns, so there's probably no other uh, age range of pediatrics that we see so much anxiety over, and rightly so. I can remember when we took uh, our newborn son home, our first uh, first child, and, you know, at the time I was a trained pediatrician, uh, my wife was a nurse, and you know, we knew what to do, particularly if, if they got sick, if he got sick. But we just sort of looked at each other at one point and were like, well, I don't know what to do much with a, a normal, healthy baby with all the downtime. I sort of know what uh, what physicians should say. But taking care of your own child can be a lot different. And being a health care provider might, uh, might uh, have a lot of positives to help you deal with that. But there's still a lot of anxiety and a lot of questions, and you've got a lot of variability from one child to the other. So we're going to be tackling some of the most common things that you see in newborns today, and would love to hear your questions. Maybe you have a newborn in your family. You might not be a parent, but a grandparent, or uh, maybe somebody else that's close to you has a, a young child, and you have some questions about anything. Maybe it's a skin problem. Maybe it's uh, a certain noise that they're making or feeding difficulties. Always a common question in the clinic. Uh, this is your opportunity to call in and ask those questions, and we'll try to get an answer uh, on what's going on. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So why is it important about knowing what to expect? Well, as we mentioned, with a newborn in the home, uh, there's lots of things that change. Uh, and communicating uh, what is is normal and abnormal can be challenging sometimes. Now, we live in the information age, and you can go to the Internet and find all kinds of information. I will say, however, that, you know, the, the problem with that is because every child is different, every child is unique, even within the same family, then the way one child is going to react, say, to sleep patterns or even a certain technique that you're using for comfort with one child, it may not work as well with that other child just because of differences in temperaments. And, you know, children are pretty much born with their temperament to a certain extent uh, right from birth. Even before that, if you talk to mothers and sort of activity levels in the, in the, uh, when they're in the uterus uh, developing, uh, there can be differences from one individual to another. And if you think about it, the way you interact with people on a day-in and day-out basis, um, you know, that, that has a lot to do with, uh, with, with how you interact with them as those personality traits and their temperament. So the same thing can be said for babies. You think about that time when you first come home with your newborn child, too, and 
another issue is you're sleep deprived. You're having to stay up with this new baby. They're having to uh, feed frequently. And we all know how we feel when we don't uh, get adequate sleep. Uh, we worry more. We tend to have more anxiety problems. We tend to not think as clearly, and that can be a problem with trying to figure out this newborn and what works for them as an individual. Environment that that uh, in the home can be another issue. You know, you can have uh, you can have a lot of interaction with with siblings uh, that you have to to deal with. Sometimes younger siblings, particularly if they're toddlers, can have. A lot of problems with the newborn coming into the family, and it can change the dynamics of the way that you interact with him. Certainly, they'd have less attention uh, for those first few months, at least. So that can that can be a stressor too. And then, how much support you have? Always, I, I ask parents when they come in for that first uh, couple of, of visits uh, in the first two to four months. You know, what, what's your help at home? Who do you have that can help you with those with those late night or in the middle of the night feedings? Um, who's helping out with the chores around the house, uh, those kinds of things can be extremely helpful. So there's lots of things to consider. Uh, and then what's normal and abnormal? Babies can make a lot of, do a lot of different stuff. Some of it is just normal development. Some of it is benign things. But other things are a little bit more serious and require a little bit more attention. So we're talking about newborn problems today. Let's go to our first caller from Loosedale, Mississippi. Let's go to Elizabeth. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for calling. You bet. Um, I have a, a very serious question, actually. Sure. I have a friend that had a child not too long ago, and it has what's called intractable epilepsy. Yes. And uh, it seems to have done some kind of brain damage. I don't know anything about this. I'm so I'm so blind. I don't know what to do to help. But I, it's my understanding there's nothing much that they can do, not even medication. So, yeah, so that there can be different forms of seizures at different ages. And generally speaking, if seizures that develop fairly early on and are persistent, meaning that they don't go away easily with right. some of the more common medications, they're prolonged, uh, those can be a problem. Now, there are... You know, seizures that, that happen with, uh, that are called febrile seizures that are fairly common and don't cause any long-term problems. Uh, well, this, uh, this is right, bad. right. It sounds really like bad. what you're describing could be either, uh, you know, infantile forms of epilepsy or infantile spasms. Um, uh-huh. So both of those disorders, you're right. There's There are very limited things that you can do. Uh, and most of the times, uh, those things are caused by a change in how the, de- the brain develops so that right. the connections are not, you know, not uh, like they should be uh, in the brain. So that's, you, you can't really fix that or, or control the seizures well if that's what's happening. Um, there are some medications that can help with some of the side effects of that. And sometimes, depending on the severity, you're just trying to control as many seizures as you can and then monitor that child over time to see what you can do. But yeah, it's, I, I, it's breathing. I mean, it's, it's been a life and death thing at times. Yeah, and the more severe seizures can do that. You're right. And um, I, I wish I had, you know, I could, I could offer you uh, more optimistic, uh, you know, things that you could do. But generally speaking, it, it, it sounds like they're addressing, you know, some of the things that they, they should normally address. Are they seeing a pediatric neurologist? 
Yes. Okay, good. Uh, yeah. Not, I, I tried reading up on it, and honestly, all I got was there's not much that can be done. And, and I, that's just so hopeless. And then as they age, um, even suicide is very common in uh, intractable epileptics, which was really sad. It was like a quarter of them, uh, of these people that they studied, had actually committed suicide. And because they're outcasts, they don't fit in. They have seizures all the time, and they can't drive, and they can't swim. And yeah, and uh, you're right. There is a higher instance of that uh, with any chronic illness in childhood. What I would suggest to you and how you can help this, this the family uh, to cope with that and uh, and support them is they do need a lot of support and in thinking about ways that you can help them. You know, if they need help with with uh, doctor's visits, if they need help. Uh, you know, somebody who's trained to that can feels comfortable enough to watch that child while they go and do other things uh, that they need to do, and then to reach out to support groups. There, the uh, Epilepsy Foundation uh, in the state and in nationally, they have some regional support groups that uh, parents can go to, and even if they don't have a formal one, it's pretty easy because. You know, if you take all of epilepsy, and that, that's another name for seizures uh, in, in children, that's about 5% of children who will have epilepsy as a chronic illness. Now, you know, that, that's not including, that does include some of the more severe forms like you mentioned, but it's, it's pretty much everybody is there. And that, that provides a lot of people out there that, uh, that they could reach out to and, and get some help and not knowing what to expect sometimes talking to other families can be a big help you know i do as much as i can i mean it's sure but it's so sad it's just so sad i just i feel so helpless because i don't know what to do and i don't know how to help them yeah other than just be there and take care of her when you know things right. happen but Right. Well, well, Elizabeth, I think I think you're just wi- your willingness to do that and availability speak volumes. I know that that uh, they they probably appreciate that more than, you know, uh, but I would just continue to try to do that for them. And, you know, I, what I tell families, too, is you got to look for little signs of hope and right. Um, right. small things that you have with your child with particularly with devastating chronic illnesses. You got to look for those small things. Uh, right. that are with them. And, you know, just, just try to encourage them, Elizabeth, as much as you can. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. And thank you for calling. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about newborn things this morning, what to expect. We're going to be talking more about that when we come back after this break. But we would love to hear your questions. If you have a newborn that just came home and maybe they're doing something you just can't quite figure out what that is, give us a call. We'll try to give you an answer at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break.
home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Keegan-Michael Key, half of the sketch comedy team Key and Peel, did not dream big when he was young. You have these dirty dreams. What if there was the first black James Bond and it was me? <gasps> You're going to hell. He doesn't feel that way anymore. We'll talk to him and hear the latest on the health care debate this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, kids and teens with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about newborn advice this morning. What to expect with your newborn, or maybe it's somebody close to you, they have a newborn. Seems like at this age, that's always a better scenario. Somebody else has a newborn, you can help out. So, because that's a time uh, that uh, is stressful for families. Even if you've got the best baby in the world, you're still going to be sleep deprived and being. Uh, challenge to try to figure them out. Uh, always, always a challenging period, but a very joyous period for the most part. So we would love to hear any kind of questions you have about how to take care of that newborn, or maybe there are some questions about some things that don't quite fit with your expectations. Give us a call today at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So let's talk about what I call the northern latitudes. You can tell I've been to the beach, uh, and I mean everything from the waist up. What goes on with a baby from the waist up that's common? Probably the most common question that we get uh, in the first you know, couple of weeks uh, after somebody brings that newborn home, and in the hospital too, is feeding. So how do you feed this baby, and how does that work? A couple of things that you need to know about feeding. First of all, babies are... Uh, because they're small and because their organ systems are not developed yet, uh, you know, they, they can't walk, obviously, or crawl or talk. And in the same way, some of their organs don't work as well with processing things. And because of their size, they need a lot of food to eat throughout the day. They can't store food very well uh, in the ways that older kids and adults can. So even going sometimes three or four hours is a big stretch for them. That would be like going 12 to 18 hours for an adult uh, or maybe even longer in some cases. So frequent feedings are a necessity uh, for those babies uh, when they first uh, when they're first born. So usually you're looking at uh, at least eight feedings a day. Um, and whether that's uh, choice of formula or breast milk, you know, that may change a little bit based on the volume that they get. Most of the time, that initial uh, rooting behavior is what we call it, call it, whether that baby's sort of rooting around either to nurse on the breast or uh, with a bottle with its formula. You know, those are, those are reflexes that they have, but they also have to learn how to do that. And also, you know, if you talk to, to lactation specialists, 
Um, there is a difference in how that child, if they're taking a bottle in the way that they, their mouth moves and all the different structures in the mouth, including the tongue, move to uh, obtain milk from the breast is pretty different from the way that they would do it with a bottle. And some of that is learned at first, so you have to sort of work with that. So uh, not everybody has the experience of when you, uh, you know, when that baby first latches onto the breast and breastfeeds, uh, everything works perfect. Usually you have to learn how to do that and have a correct latch on to, to ensure that they get good nutrition. Uh, big proponent of breastfeeding. It's it's the most natural way, the healthiest way uh, that your baby can feed uh, to obtain nutrition. A lot of benefits that go beyond just the nutritional aspects. Uh, a lot of chronic diseases that we see uh, in decreased um, uh, that are decreased later on in that child's life if they uh, at least breastfeed for some period of time. But it is the best thing that you can do for your baby if you can do it. There are some some signs too. You know, some babies. Uh, we all know. Uh, you know, a lot of people use pacifiers uh, for uh, comfort reasons. Certainly not uh, for feeding. But that pacifier is a way that a baby gets feedback. And there is a difference between uh, how they suck on a pacifier as to how they suck on a bottle or the breast uh, to get nutrition. And we call those satiety uh, signals when they're full. So you you have to sort of work with your uh, lactation specialist in the hospital before you go home and sort of realize that just because they're, they're you know, sort of uh, sucking on a pacifier doesn't mean that they're hungry all the time. And that can be real subtle. That can be, again, differences in, in individuals. Some parents have uh, the experience of having difficulties with either uh, lactation or feeding uh, and those babies may have what's called tongue-tied disorder uh, or ankyloglossia is the fancy name that we use for it. And that just means that the little uh, uh, frenum that uh, connects the lower part of the tongue to the, uh, the base of the mouth is a little bit tighter, a little bit shorter, and it doesn't allow their tongue to uh, be in the right position to feed. And a lot of times, if it's mild, usually you can work with it, maybe have some different maneuvers. But there is a procedure for that that sometimes uh, babies have to have where that's clipped. It's usually an outpatient procedure. You can do it in the office uh, or even in the hospital before they go home. Uh, ENT doctors do it. Sometimes pediatricians would do it or neonatologists. Uh, but it, it does uh, loosen up the tongue a little bit so that they can they can feed better in some cases. Um, so that's something to to consider if you're having problems with feeding. Uh, the best thing is to get your get yourself to a lactation specialist if you're breastfeeding, or ask your pediatrician uh, just about those feeding difficulties. But usually, for the first couple of feedings, the baby's not getting much nutrition. They're getting uh, just really used to doing that uh, as a as a mechanism, as a reflex, so that they can uh, they can get that milk uh, or get that formula in the way that they. They uh, need it for nutrition. Uh, because of that, babies have about a 10 to 15% cushion uh, of nutrition and fluid that they can survive on for that first uh, you know, couple of days to, uh, uh, to three or four days. That doesn't mean, again, that you don't want to feed them, that they can survive without feeding for those three or four days. But they usually lose anywhere from 10 to 15% of their birth weight. 
during that uh, that first couple of days while they're getting used to that. And usually they'll gain that back by about two weeks. In fact, that's one of the things that we look for at that first two-week visit is to have they regained at least their, their birth weight. A lot of other questions about, uh, if we're talking about northern things in the upper part of the body, um, I goop. A lot of patients say, you know, our our their parents bring them in and they say, my baby's eyes, I think they have an infection because I've got this dried up goop that's in their eye. And the, one of the more common things that can happen is if you think about it, when you cry or maybe you have watery eyes from whatever the cause, allergies or something that's irritating your eye, the way that your, your drainage system around the eye works is it goes into your nose. Think about it. If you cry, you usually get a runny nose right after that because all the tears uh, that don't overflow would drain down into the nose itself. So that that little duct, that little passageway that goes into the nose in a baby, as you can imagine, very, very small. And sometimes that can be sort of stopped up uh, when they're a newborn. Uh, we call that uh, dacrostenosis. Uh, uh, and uh, usually that uh, corrects itself without any kind of intervention by one year of age. But what happens is those tears, when they dry, they do look sort of gooped up. They can look exactly like an infection because they can be yellow, sort of brownish yellow in color, uh, maybe sort of sticky too when that child, particularly if they've been asleep. Uh, but if the white of the eye, if the, the conjunctiva is clear, usually that's not an infection uh, so if the eye itself, you have to ask your physician to take a look there, and they may say, well, it's really not an infection. It's just uh, the uh, tear uh, duct that connects the eye to the nose is stopped up. And again, 90% of those are going to correct themselves by one year of age. If not, that's a simple little procedure that they can do. Um, other changes in the face or hair over time. I've had a lot of people bring their babies in at about one month of age, and uh, particularly um, first-time mothers, and they'll say they're having hair loss. I mean, they're losing hair all over the place, particularly if they were born with very thick hair. And that's pretty common. Um, so what happens is during that time that the baby's uh, developing in the uterus, they're exposed to all the normal hormones that, that mom would have to help support that pregnancy and, and develop that baby. And a lot of that, uh, a lot of those hormones, normal female hormones that are elevated during that time would cause the baby to grow a lot of hair. And a lot of babies come out with really thick, dark hair. Well, when they come out, they're basically not exposed to those same hormone levels and they can lose hair. Usually they'll, that hair will thin out at least a little bit in the first month uh, of life. And then it can even change color too, can be very darker because of that hormone uh, exposure and then lighten up uh, later on. So hair changes are pretty common. Uh, another one, particularly that dads notice in their young boys, is breast enlargement. And again, because of that exposure to hormone levels when they're inside the, the mother's uterus, um, they can have an enlargement of one or both breast, which is just normal breast tissue. Every baby's born with the same amount of breast tissue. And if it's stimulated by hormones or a little bit more sensitive to hormones, male or female, they can cause a little bit of, uh, of breast development. And uh, it, you can even sometimes see milk being produced from the baby's breast. Not a whole lot, but just a little bit. And uh, again, just get your pediatrician to take a look at that. But that's a normal finding. It goes away after they're born and after they are not exposed to that same level 
of hormones. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy. We're talking about newborn advice this morning, sort of what to expect with your normal newborn and maybe some things to watch out for. We'd love to take your calls this morning. You can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We're going to continue our discussion about newborn advice right after this break. MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. On the next Fit to Eat, I'll be preparing a savory pan-seared steak that I'm going to top with a strawberry compote, and then I'll make some fresh homemade potato crisps. Registered dietitian Rebecca Turner has some tips for buying beef, and my guest is the lieutenant governor of the great state of Mississippi, Tate Reeves. It's going to be a great show, so tune in and see what's fit to eat. Saturday at 1.30 and Sunday at 10 on MPB TV. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens, with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about newborn advice this morning. Things to expect from your newborn. Maybe some questions that you have that you would like to ask about that specifically. You can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So lots of things that can happen in the course of what's what we call normal uh, a lot of different skin changes that you could see, a lot of different feeding regimens. I will mention uh, one thing about, you know, again, information is out there that you may see online or in a book. And a lot of people will have these very regimented uh, schedules that they put their babies on. And those can work for a lot of babies. But, you know, again, temperament-wise, you really have to just sort of feel things out with your own child. Uh, and just like... You know, it's common for for older kids and adults to have different patterns of of when they feed. You know, every feeding is not going to be exactly, you know, two ounces. It may be one and a half ounce. It may be three ounces. 
Uh, it just varies from feeding to feeding and from day to day. But what we're looking at is the average that they're taking in uh, and, and looking at that growth and development. Are they growing appropriately as they get older? Uh, so very important nutrition is in the development of your child and particularly how their brain develops, but also how their or other organs develop. So we talked a little bit about things to expect in the upper regions around the face and uh, neck and head. One of the other things that you, uh, you know, we have questions about is soft spots. So the soft spots are those places on the head uh, that are uh, spaces between the bones of the skull. And uh, to grow appropriately, the brain needs to grow from when you're born uh, to get bigger. And one of the ways it does that is it has to have room in the skull. The skull protects the brain from the outside environment. But when you're younger, uh, because of the way bone grows, you have to have space between those bones, and then they close up with time. So it's it's very important to realize that those things you know, are open at when they're when they're a newborn normally, and your physician's going to be checking for those when you go to visits to make sure that they're open appropriately when they need to be open and not closed prematurely. That's called craniosynostosis when those bones don't appropriately uh, separate during development, and uh, that can you know require some surgery in some. Uh, some instances, but usually that anterior fontanelle, that soft spot on the top of the head, the front part of the top of the head, um, that usually is, is is supposed to be open at birth and then closes anywhere between nine and eighteen months of age. There's another one that's smaller that a lot of people don't aren't you know don't realize that it's there unless you really feel for it. It's the posterior fontanelle on the back. Uh, so again, on the top part of the head, except toward the back. Um, it, it usually closes up first. It's a, about four months of age. It should close up. So a lot of different things about the scalp. When the baby's born, uh, particularly if they're uh, vaginally delivered and not a C-section, you can have a lot of changes to the scalp and soft tissue, a lot of swelling sometimes. Baby's eyes would be swelling, uh, swollen after that just because of the increased pressure with going through the birth canal. Those changes uh, usually subside in the first uh, 18 to 24 hours, sometimes a little bit longer than that. And then you can also have some some minor bleeding or uh, underneath the skin or even sometimes uh, just right underneath the surface of some of those bones. And uh, again, most of those, you know, a physician will look at right after birth and then follow those up. But most of them do okay. So what about lower than that? So if we talk about, you know, so the nether regions uh, is the other part that people have a lot of uh, a lot of questions about. So stool, you know, uh, there are two time periods in life when we focus the most on our poop. Uh, number one is when we're very young, and then when we get older, we focus on it again usually. And you can have a lot of different, uh, again, a lot of different patterns of that, a lot of different ways. You would think that if a baby's taking formula or breast milk, that that poop should be uniform in color, that it shouldn't change very much, and that they should have regular bowel movements uh, with that. However, there's a lot of things that play into that. And you need to know, and this is sort of gross, but you need to know exactly what's in poop. What are the things that are in poop? Well, the number one thing is about 80% of poop are is made up of bacteria. Uh, so that's a lot of bacteria if you think about it. Our bodies are designed to have normal functioning bacteria in our gut. And you're not necessarily, well, you're not born with that. You have to acquire that 
shortly after birth, the gut's populated by normal functioning bacteria that are there to help uh, with a lot of different things, to help process foods, to help produce some of the vitamins that we have in food uh, that, that our bodies need. So it's really a relationship that we have for the rest of our lives with those bacteria. And when, uh, when you're populating the gut in those early first you know, days to weeks, uh, that can change with time so that you can have different bacteria. Certainly, in most cases, you don't need to add anything, add any bacteria. And a lot of people will advocate adding those things. All that's natural. It's going to happen on its own with very few deviations to that. Uh, but that's poop. About 80% is dead bacteria that your body's eliminating. The other part is uh, insoluble fibers, so it's what's left over after foods are digested. Now, if you're breastfeeding, there's generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of volume to that poop when it comes out. Breast milk is pretty well absorbed, and uh, particularly when the baby is establishing those bacteria, there's not a whole lot of volume there for the, to make up the poop. So you might not have as large volume stools as you would if, say, you were formula, formula feeding. And uh, there, But it does tend to be a lot of watery consistency to it. But a normal stool is really anything from uh, sort of seedy yellow-brown to green. It can change colors, again, even if you don't uh, you know, if you're not changing formula, if you're not changing breast milk, uh, it it just does that. It does it, and it can. It, there's no rhyme or reason to it sometimes. But all those colors are okay. Green stool, brown stool, yellow stool, those are all okay. If the stool doesn't have any color to it, like if it's a pale whitish gray. That may be something that you need to at least ask your pediatrician to look at. Uh, or if there's blood in the stool, certainly that can, uh, you know, that's something that they need to to take a look at too because uh, there may be uh, a disorder that's causing that. But, and, you know, stool frequency is something else that, that varies. Now, usually for the first couple of weeks of life up through about a month, uh, most feedings you're going to have a stool. Again, much more frequent stools, but lower volume with breastfeeding. If you're formula feeding, uh, you may have less during the day. Uh, and then usually those after those first couple of weeks, a baby's going to cu- sort of go into a routine of how many stools are going to have in a day. Some have five, some have one. And again, constipation is an issue with a lot of patients uh, that are worried about their, you know, worried about their kids if they're only having one stool a day uh, the, as a baby. As long as that stool is is uh, looser on the looser side, formed but looser, that's okay. That's not true constipation. Constipation is when that stool is really, really hard. In fact, I heard a you know a pediatric gastroenterologist years ago say. If you if you can't pick that stool up and throw it at the wall and it bounces off, it's not constipation. Uh, and and there's some truth to that. You know, there's uh, certainly if they go more than about three or four days, that's probably an abnormal pattern. But most of the time, babies are going to establish that pattern that they have. So if you start talking to other moms and they say, "Hey, my kid's going five six times a day, and your kid's only going once a day, but the stool is formed and soft." Uh, count your blessings. That's that's a, a good pattern to be in. But you can't really determine that. That has to be determined by the baby themselves. So those are some of the things to expect and to look out for with stooling. Same thing with wet diapers. So a baby, depending on the amount of fluids that they're intake, uh, that they're uh, getting in, the amount of 
um, of uh, volume loss through their skin. Uh, you know, particularly if they're if it's hotter inside, they may sweat a little bit more. Um, they lose a lot more water through their skin than you think. So that can that can be a modifier of how many times that they're having wet diapers. But generally speaking, about four or five wet diapers a day is about uh, an average to sort of look at. Um, urine color, again, that can be dependent on the concentration of it. Our kidneys do a great job normally of concentrating the urine depending on what our volume status is, if we're a little bit dehydrated or if we're not getting enough in or if we're getting more fluid in. Um, one thing to mention on feeding, though, that that is in relationship to that, regardless if your baby's fed with breast milk or with formula, they don't need anything else besides those those things. So if you're thinking or somebody's telling you, you know, your baby needs a little bit of water added to that or water separately in a bottle or sugar water or juice, that's a no-no. And we've seen lots of kids get admitted to the hospital because their electrolytes, those substances in the body that it uses to do all kinds of different things, are sort of watered down. Uh, same thing with concentrating formula. You don't want to do that. You want to do exactly like it says on the bottle uh, or, or breastfeed because that's the most natural way. And babies really up until about five and a half, six months of age, they don't need anything else besides that, including solid food. Uh, they don't need baby foods uh, up, up to that point. Uh, breast milk and formula has everything that they need uh, to grow and development and all of their water needs to are through those substances. So don't add anything or substitute something else that they're getting in. Well, what about diaper rashes? So that's a common thing too. And thankfully, you know, a lot of the diapers that are used today, they're so good at absorbing uh, fluids, absorbing uh, water uh, from urine uh, or from poop uh, that you just don't see a whole lot of that the way you used to. I mean, they're really good at at absorbing that. But, uh, you know, there's a couple of different common diaper rashes that you see. The most common is diaper dermatitis, and that's just because of a moist environment that has a little bit of irritation. Maybe the poop is irritating the skin because it's been there a little bit longer than than you noticed that it needed to be changed. And there's there, obviously the, the first thing in preventing that is, is keeping that area dry. So you want to make sure you clean up all that poop off the bottom uh, and, uh, and make sure that you have a dry diaper on there. Uh, but it's going to happen from time to time that things stay on there. You can also, if you have a little bit of irritation from that, maybe it's just a little bit red, it looks a little angry, the skin does, any of the over-the-counter uh, what we call occlusive uh, diaper uh, creams, uh, Boudreaux's is one, uh, lots of others that are out there. They work really well. Zinc oxide, if you're looking for one that doesn't have a whole lot of other stuff in it. Uh, all that does is creates a barrier between the wet environment around that diaper and the skin. Uh, but that's something that you can use. Another common um, rash that you'll see in the diaper area is candida or yeast. And the yeast rash looks a little bit different. It's, uh, it is red and has what's called satellite lesions. So it's like little pinpoint lesions, little pinpoint red areas around that. And that's one that you really can't treat too well with over-the-counter medications, even if you're using something like A&D diaper uh, formula. Usually you have to use uh, a prescription medication that you can topically uh, put on it and your, your uh physician or, or a primary care provider can help out with that. But those are two of the more common 
diaper rashes that you can see. And again, keeping that area dry is probably the best, uh, the best advice in trying to prevent both of those common ones. We're talking about newborn advice today. I'm Dr. Jimmy here on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. You can reach us with your questions. Still got time for those. If you've got a burning question that you need to ask about your newborn or about the health of your family, you can reach us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Hey, y'all, it's Felder Rushing. I'm the Gestalt Gardener, and I am so pleased to join y'all every week talking about gardening. You know, you don't have to be anybody or join anything to be part of this party. All we're going to do is talk about gardening and garden-related stuff and maybe a little psychology working in at the same time. Let's have a lot of fun on the Gestalt Gardener. Fridays at 9 and Saturdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens with Dr. Jimmy Stewart. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mbbonline.org. to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we've been talking about newborn advice, all those different things you have to learn. It's like a course you need to take, right? Except that the answer to the test changes with time. So every time you take the test, it's different. That would be, that's like a nightmare. That's like one of those college nightmares. Uh, Throw in less clothes to that dream, and it'd probably be a college nightmare, right? So we've been talking about all kinds of different things that... uh, that can go wrong or that are normal with a newborn and a lot of different little little bitty things that you might notice on that newborn. After all, you're it's the cutest thing in the world and any little blemish, man, you want to just really jump on that. Like, why is that there? I don't want that there on my newborn. So we've been talking about those those issues. You can reach us today at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Joe who's walking in Memphis. Hello, Dr. Jimmy. Hey Joe, thanks for calling. Thank you. I've been told that on newborns that you need to turn their head while they're laying down to the right, left, and back, etc. 
in order to shape the head to where it's supposed to be. What is your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. We get that all the time. So, uh, so when a baby's born, you know, their head, they're not able to have their musculature that controls that head that can keep it upright like in an older baby or an older child or adult is not developed yet. And you have to support them. That's why you should always support that head and neck uh, in, a, in a newborn baby and, and young infant until those uh, neck muscles develop. So the thing that I think you're talking about, Joe, is, is a condition called molding. Uh, of the head, and sometimes you can get cephaloplasia or or different types of molding, and some babies will prefer one side or the other to lay on. Uh, now, when they're really really young, they may not be able to to move their head to turn their head over one way or the other, but usually that develops in in you know an appropriate period of time so that they can do that. Another thing that can happen is depending on how they're laying. They can rub off some of the, you know, they can uh, have a, abrasion, not really abrasion, but it's friction to the area enough that they lose a little bit of the hair in the area. Uh, that usually grows back with time. But the molding part of it that you mentioned that, uh, you know, cha- uh, turning the baby's head uh, periodically as they're laying down can help with that. That There is some truth to that. So if they lay on the same side for long enough, yeah, you'll get a little bit of, of different shape to the head, which may look a little bit asymmetric. Some babies have that condition uh, anyway, uh, so that, you know, you might want to talk to your pediatrician about that. In really, really severe cases, they may even, you know, uh, they may even suggest that they have a molding uh, helmet when they're older to try to, to correct that. But most of the time, those things, once they get that, that head tone, They'll uh, they'll they'll you know move their head around enough so that they're not laying on the same side all the time. But it's just a little bit more pressure on one side of the head. Uh, doesn't cause any kind of brain damage. Doesn't cause you know any kind of long term neurologic uh, uh, problems. It's really just uh, just molding of that skull. Interestingly enough, there's certain uh, you know cultures that did that. Uh, the Mayans and uh, Incas practice head molding among the royalty. So they would actually wrap the baby's head using various, you know, reeds or, or uh, uh, you know, loose loose bindings, and uh, they would mold the head so that you knew, uh, you know, from the sloping heads uh, of the royalty who was royalty and who was not. Uh, of course, we would never, you know, never uh, do that today, but that's something that a lot of cultures did in the past. And from what we know about it, they didn't have any problems besides their heads just looking different. Um, but that's, you know, that is something to, to keep in mind. Now, one thing I would say, a lot of people say, well, I, I don't want to put my baby on their back to sleep, uh, to lay down to sleep because I'm worried about that, that head molding. Um, that's, you don't want to put your baby on their stomach to sleep, um, particularly if that's your, your, what you're worried about because of the increased risk of SIDS or Southern Infant uh, Death Syndrome. And that's a real thing. And unfortunately, I've seen that uh, more than, than a few times. And it can be tragic for families to have a, a totally normal baby that for whatever reason, you know, they, they were sleeping on their stomach. Maybe they had a lot of fluffy excess bedding uh, covers or, or blankets around and uh, the baby uh, suffocated when they slept. So you definitely want to have them sleep on their back. If they do have some molding, certainly when they're really, really young, you can just turn that head, but don't fight with them. If they're turning their head to one direction or the other, you're not going to win by turning it the other direction. And once they get old enough to do that, 
uh, go get you some sleep while they're sleeping, and uh, they should be just fine. So good question, Joe. That's a common one we get uh, about that head molding, and do you need to turn their head like that? Thank you. Sure. Thanks for calling. So a couple other things that I wanted to mention today uh, that you you see. One is jaundice. So uh, jaundice is a discoloration of the skin. Almost every baby has a little bit of jaundice uh, when they're born. And the cause of that is just a yellowing of the skin uh, when they're born uh, shortly after birth, usually around two to three days, depending on the type of jaundice. And uh, the normal part of jaundice is that when you're in the uterus inside mom, uh, the red blood cells have different, uh, it's a different type of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the substance that um, helps to transport oxygen from the lungs to the rest of the body. Well, because that baby's not breathing uh, it, through their lungs to exchange oxygen, instead they're cha- exchanging it through the placenta and through the umbilical cord uh, with mom circulation, they have to have a different type of hemoglobin to help transport that oxygen. And shortly, uh, you know, around the time of birth and afterwards, they transfer production from that early form of hemoglobin to the uh, more appropriate uh, adult form of hemoglobin. And because of that, they turn over a lot of red blood cells. And some of the byproducts of those red blood cells is bilirubin. And bilirubin is what causes the tint of the skin or the eyes, sometimes the white part of the eyes. You can also see it in mucous membranes, like in the, you know, if the underneath the tongue and the rest of the mouth, even if you're looking in the ears in, in babies and you can see that. So that's a normal thing. It usually peaks, you know, anywhere from about uh, five to six days. Babies who are breastfed for a number of reasons, uh, physiologic reasons, they they have an increased level of bilirubin. But most of the time that uh, peaks out and then falls back down. Uh, Your physician may want you after you leave the hospital after that baby's born to come back for a recheck on the bilirubin. And the reason for that is if there's another reason while it's going up, if uh, if your child is premature and maybe their liver is not working as well as it should, uh, or if there is a mismatch of the parents if the, of the mother's blood type and the baby's blood type, then those those things can cause an increased risk of higher bilirubin levels. And at really high levels, they can be a problem. But the usual sort of yellowish tint that a child has uh, that peaks out after about a week uh, to 10 days. That's that's a normal finding usually. Um, and as long as they're, you know, as long as they're eating okay, as long as they're stooling okay, it's not uh, anything you have to worry about. But your, your physician will be uh, looking at those things as they, as they check them out. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Appreciate our callers calling in to ask some questions about newborns. Always sort of a mystery uh, to try to figure those things out. We hope you got your questions answered and had some good information, too, on Southern Rimini Kids and Teens. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can join us at Thursday, uh, next Thursday at 11 o'clock on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. Think Radio.